the facility is, you know, close to half a century old. Um, and it's incredibly dilapidated. When you come upon the building, the first thing that you notice is that it's tucked away from the public eye. That is a public defender named Annie Andrews. She's describing the dead-end street she walks down to visit her clients in Charleston, South Carolina. As soon as you walk through the front door, um, you're greeted by a guard station. And once you walk past that, once you walk past security, there's a central activity room in the center of the um, building. And then on either side of that building, there's a corridor. And the corridor is where they house juveniles. It's a building Annie's familiar with. She represents dozens of people detained there. Been in the facility when, when it's raining, and I've seen, you know, six or seven mop buckets collecting rainwater as the roof is leaking into the facility. Um, I've heard rats running or something that sounds like rats running in the ceiling above me as I've sat next to clients talking to them about their cases. I've had bugs jump on me. Um, I've seen bugs jump off of my clients while I've been sitting with them, um, talking to them about their cases. It, it's shocking. You know, it, it shocked me the first time I went into the facility. And what I saw is something that I, ex- I expected you might find in a developing country. Um, and I certainly was shocked to see that Charleston, which is one of the richest uh, counties and cities in South Carolina, would, would treat children this way. On the other coast, on the evening of August 18, 2014, 17-year-old Tyus Reed watched the Tacoma, Washington streets pass by from the backseat of a cop car. And then when I was sitting in the back of the cop car going to jail, I remember looking out the window and just thinking to myself, like, I'm about to go to jail. I always thought, like, going to jail was cool. I would see guys come home from jail, and they were buff, and they were big, and they would have all these stories. You know, we'd have a party for them, and you would be like, oh, that's cool. I want that for me. You know, that's cool. Reality was far from cool. While I was on my way to that jail cell, looking out that window in that cop car, I would have never knew what I was about to get myself into. I I had no clue. And I wish I could go back and tell myself because it 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 was a trip. A trip that would take Tyus through five different facilities, both juvenile detention centers and adult prisons. It was a journey through a system intended to rehabilitate and support youth offenders. But for Tyus and the 48,000 kids locked up across America on any given day, two-thirds of which are in highly secured, prison-like facilities, this experience often falls short. The quality of education is absolutely dismal. I would never have had a child in this Geneva was the worst experience of my life. I would have never knew what I was about to get myself into. On this episode, we explore what life is like in these places, the services they do and don't offer, and how they affect the kids who grow up there. I'm Anthony Wallace, and this is Kids Imprisoned. Prisons 
for kids. Games for kids. Cheers, man. A lot of them kids never felt love before. I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. Okay, I'm here with Ike Simanis, one of the News 21 reporters who's been investigating what life is like inside juvenile justice facilities across the country. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, Ike, what have you and our colleagues found about what these places are like? So it's hard to paint a clear picture what it looks like because it differs so much from place to place. Some facilities are what you might expect a prison to be like, and some are more like summer camps. But the conditions of some facilities are downright dismal. For example, let's look at a lawsuit filed against the Charleston County Juvenile Detention Center in South Carolina. I'll read you a little bit from the complaint. It reeks of mold and plays host to rodents, spiders, ants, roaches, bedbugs, and termites. It's just disgusting. But my son told me and other kids have told me that there's mold in the showers real bad. These kids take showers every day with moldy showers. That's Sabrina Washington. Her son Xavier spent a few months in that detention center in 2019. My son even had an incident where I had to go out there because another child called his parents and told him that my son was in the in the cell screaming and kicking on the door, you know, for somebody to help him. Sergeant told me that she let him out the room and she gave him a blanket and changed his clothes and stuff because he was in a flooded room. The room, the toilet or something overflowed in the room and he was in the room with no blanket because it was wet and he he had to you know just stay in there until the next day i guess when this lady came in wow so it sounds like some of these places are really kind of disgusting just the physical conditions are so poor i mean is there are there other cases like this unfortunately there are several here's another example from geneva nebraska In 2019, a long-term facility for girls there had to be evacuated. This happened after a group of girls barricaded themselves in an office and made phone calls to Child Protective Services, along with their parents, saying they felt unsafe. And when the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services investigated in January 2020, they found mold, holes in the walls, wires hanging from the ceiling, and more. So I was elected when I was... In my late 20s, I'm the youngest chair of uh, that the Health and Human Services Committee has ever had. That's Sarah Howard, a state senator representing the Omaha District in Nebraska. Last August, she took a drive with some other committee members to Geneva after the girls had been moved to another facility. So we drive out to Geneva. Surprise visit. It's a Friday afternoon. And it is worse than I ever could have imagined. Like, I would never have had a child be, no matter what they did, I would never have put them in this position. When you got in there, the graffiti on the walls was just terrifying. It was a lot of, I'm never going to get out of here. Please save me. I'm so scared. You would go into a room and you would look at the back of a door and the back of the door would have like nail marks on it. They would have a lot of really disturbing graffiti that I took a lot of pictures of because I didn't think anybody would believe me if they didn't see what I was seeing. Okay, so when Howard and her colleagues got to this place, sounds like it was just decrepit, just falling apart. Yes, the buildings had fallen into disrepair after several incidents of vandalism from the girls. And listen to more of what Senator Howard had to say. And then we went across the hall, across the campus, and we went into a building uh, called SAC, Second 
Julia. It was like walking into a hoarder's attic that had had rain damage and then was shut up for two weeks. Like it was horrible. Like it just hit you in the face. And then as we walked through the rooms, it was more graffiti. It was more, um, uh, uh, the beds were all stripped down. The window coverings were broken. Uh, there, the really disturbing thing was that the, between the rooms, the girls had been able to pull apart the drywall so that they could talk to each other between the rooms and sometimes crawl between the rooms. We also spoke with someone who spent time at Geneva before the whole office barricading incident happened. Geneva was the worst experience of my lifetime, I would, t- I would have to say. That's Marlena Knight, who left the Geneva Center January of 2018. I lived in La Flesh Cottage, which was the the newest building, so it was most of the way remodeled um, and fixed up, but there were still, like, in my room, there were uh, plug-ins that didn't have the, like, the frame on the outside, so you could just put your finger in there and get electrocuted, probably. Mirrors that were, like, cracked all the way across that had glass falling out of them, and there were, uh, like, the pillars in the living room area were falling apart. It looked like one of them could crumble at any point in time, and they did nothing about it. There were uh, pieces of the ceiling falling apart. There was water leaking all over the floor. There was a terrible smell in there that we had to just sit in there with well, the whole time that we did our groups. And so from that point of going to Geneva, seeing what I saw, talking to the girls, that sort of opened up... Um, this whole experience of trying to figure out how to conduct a legislative investigation and make recommendations to my peers. And so Senator Howard and the rest of her committee filed a report in January 2020. So it's pretty striking to hear these descriptions and realize that, you know, kids in our country are living in places like these. I mean, they're being, you know, against their will, being made to live in places like these. It is shocking, and it's hard to know exactly how many facilities are like the ones we've talked about. But other News 21 reporters have found that the design of a majority of facilities for youth offenders are prison-like. And experts and advocates agree that even if they are clean and well-kept, their design is still not conducive to a child growing up. Lack of light, metal doors, and cement spaces create environments that can harm youth more than help them. Right, of course. And if they are jail-like, of course, jails are really just designed to, to to keep people in one spot. And so I can imagine it's probably not the most friendly place to grow up. Exactly. Kids within these facilities are very much just that, kids. And besides a roof over their heads and food to eat, they need additional services and support, such as recreational activities. And I did most of my time in a juvenile facility growing up and becoming a man. That's Tyus again. After he was arrested for a drive-by shooting, he was tried as an adult. He spent eight months in adult jail before his attorney cut a deal that allowed him to spend most of his sentence at a juvenile facility. We get up and they wake us up for breakfast, usually around like six o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, you got to go down as a group with your little wing, as you call it. It's just a group of probably about like 15 kids and one, two staff that look over those kids. and. Um, and we're all, you know, like kind of like a little family. And we all walk down there and we eat and then we come back and then we wait to go to school. And whoever goes to school, you go to like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth period as a, a regular school in the out. And Tyus had a favorite teacher. 
Mr. Parks. That guy, he just he just talks to you like a regular person, and he just treats you like like we really feel like a class, like you know. And like when you start feeling like that, you start acting like that, man. He's just this old, calm, real Zen guy. And his classroom was too. First of all, the lights are dim, like because um, you know in jail everything is lit up, bright lights and white walls everywhere, so everything is just everything is always like that. So when you go into hit, it's an instant vibe, instant emotion change when you're in there. Kids take notice of that. Right when you get in there, everybody's really quiet. Everybody's like, it's crazy. All these gangsters are just like, you feel me? Get into it. Nobody was fighting his class just because he was so cool. So speaking of schooling, I want to bring in Kelsey Kalesi, who's been investigating what education is like in juvenile facilities. Thanks, Anthony. So Kelsey, what have you found in your reporting? One of the things that we've learned is that every facility in every state operates completely differently. It's what Peter Leone, a professor at the University of Maryland School of Education, has dedicated hours of research to. Here's his take. There's a real patchwork across the country in terms of how um, educational services are delivered. Um, in some states, um, it's provided by the Juvenile Justice Agency. In other states, um, a school district or a Department of Education will operate education in juvenile facilities. And in other places, um, uh, the Juvenile Justice Agency will contract uh, with a private provider or will set up a charter school. Um, now. Any one of those delivery systems in and of itself is, is not a problem, but the, but the problem is, is that typically the way that they're funded, it's not driven by a formula. I've been in a number of jurisdictions where literally the juvenile justice agency kicked the school district out or, you know, kind of petitioned to get rid of the school district because what they did was they'd send all their worst teachers to juvenile justice, you know. And um, the teachers that no other principal would want in his or her school. Well, so why would a district send their worst teachers to a juvenile facility? As Leone puts it, it's because with incarcerated students, there's a, quote, tyranny of low expectations. The good news is there are people working to change that. David Dominici is one of the founders of a renowned school inside of a facility, and it's called the Maya Angelou School. Today, he works as the executive director at the Center for Educational Excellence in Alternative Settings, a nonprofit that's sole focus is improving education for system-involved youth. In his years of work, he's overcome a lot of different hurdles, but one in particular is always the first on the list. One is a philosophical or belief hurdle, which is um, that these are bad kids and these are, whether they're now called rehabilitative institutions, rehabilitation centers, these are sort of many prisons, many jails. You know, these are the belief system. Kids have done significant negative things and they don't need or are not worthy of a quality education. It's too late. They're already kind of young thugs. This doesn't make any sense. We're sort of wasting money. They had their shot. Why are we reinvesting in them? They, you know, they went to a school. They got themselves kicked out. Remember Tyus? He saw this philosophy play out firsthand. I think they get too caught up in the jail thing. I think a small percent are just bad teachers. 
you're right. And they would be bad teachers on the outside. And that's probably why they're not in the outside high school. But um, I would say most of it is just because that they just get caught up in the aspect that they're in jail and they're teaching inmates and they, they see how the staff treat us and they start adopting that persona. And unfortunately that's just what it is. It's, um, it's too much of a toss up. It's not consistent enough. So it's, if the education, some was good and some was bad. So with some teachers and with some classes, the experience was a bad experience and I have, I would have to self-educate. Well, so Dominici and Tyus both have this impression that there's a problem that the, the teachers there just think of these kids as kind of like less capable and that almost causes them to have, and that almost causes them to put less effort into educating them. Yeah. And there are a lot more experts that agree with Tyus and Dominici. That the quality of education that young people receive in detention facilities and camps, ranches, and in some of the uh, court and community schools is absolutely dismal. That was Jennifer Rodriguez, executive director of the Youth Law Center in San Francisco. And of course, Peter Leone. I, I often like to say to administrators um, who are in charge of these places um, that the, the con- particularly when I visit a facility, it's really bad. I say the, con- the educational services and programs here are not something you would tolerate for any of your own children. That you just wouldn't do it. If your kid went to a school where these kinds of things would happen, you wouldn't tolerate it. You get the point. Remember Mr. Parks, Tyus's favorite calm Zen teacher? Turns out he's more of the exception than the rule. Yeah, so it it seems like Tyus was pretty lucky to have Mr. Parks. And I know it's pretty widely known that being a teacher is is hard enough um, in a in a public school. I'm sure that teaching within a facility might even make the job more difficult. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm a former public school teacher. And when I've been talking to these teachers, what I found is that issues that public school deal with daily don't go away for teachers once they're inside of a facility. In fact, there are still behavior management issues, low on school supplies, disruptions during class time that teachers have no control over. One thing that teachers in facilities do have is a smaller class size, but that isn't actually very helpful in these classrooms. Here's Peter Leone again. In most juvenile facilities, um, kids go to school and they travel with their units. Most of the time kids, you know, you're in a heterogeneous class where, you know, some kids may be working on basic operations in math and other kids might be doing algebra two or trig or geometry, you know. But they're all in the same classroom with one teacher, maybe an aide, maybe not. Um, That happens all the time. Well, so, yeah, it seems like, you know, it's pretty hard to be a teacher. It's it's surprising that, you know, any really successfully teach in these conditions. The researchers and advocates that we talked to have all said the exact same thing you're saying. Most students who are incarcerated are not getting even close to the education that they would have in a public school setting. And that's for a lot of different reasons. So is there any data that shows how the education in these facilities compares to kind of the average experience outside of them? It's interesting you would ask that because another thing we found in our reporting is that there's very little data 
from the schools inside of facilities. That's surprising because your public schools are you know, really focused on data. There's standardized tests and they're constantly evaluated. It's surprising that you don't see that same kind of accountability or monitoring of the education that happens in juvenile justice facilities. I couldn't agree with you more. I can tell you I sat personally through a lot of different data meetings, pouring over data as a public school teacher. So I was really shocked to find out that that same thing isn't happening. But people like David Dominici are trying to make those changes for students so that they have the data to see when things are working and even when things are not working. But also with data, you can convince philanthropic groups to focus their attention on facility schools. Right. Well, other than Mr. Parks, did you come across any evidence that education in juvenile facilities can have a positive impact on the kids there? Absolutely. One of my favorite stories that Tyus told us is, you remember how he said that when guys would come home from jail, he was really impressed by how buff they got. Once he got into the facility, his perspective changed when he saw people getting to celebrate their graduation within the facility. And what was the motivation, too, was seeing my friends graduate, because you know um, how, how it goes there. Um, when you graduate, they throw a whole party for you. You took pictures. Your family gets to come. They get bake you a cake and food. And you get to, like, pick, like, inmates from whatever unit, and you, they usually never get to do that. Usually, like, you only see the people from your unit. So you get to pick, like, your friends, like, 10 friends, and you get to invite them to your graduation. And they get to come down and chill with your family, eat cake with you, and watch you get your cap and gown and your diploma. So I, I got invited to a lot of lows in my time before I got mine, and that just put the motivation of me seeing my friends graduate. He decided to join them. So I actually graduated, which it took me my entire time the whole entire three and a half years it took me to graduate. I was supposed to be class 2015. I'm class 2018. But I still got my cabin down. I still did it. One thing Tyus looked for while he was in juvenile detention was support for his mental health. Kids who never are on antidepressants, they put them on antidepressants in there. And they put me on that. I, I was depressed. I was taken away from my family. I was. I just got five years. I'm in jail. I'm depressed, obviously, but I didn't need that. And they didn't help me. I just need somebody to talk to. Some estimates say 70% of kids in the system have mental health issues. A large number of the kids in the juvenile justice system have a trauma history and or some sort of mental health diagnosis. That's Charlene Taylor, a researcher with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. She's an expert and advocate for juvenile justice and mental health. Um, when you start to look at, at especially like detention type facilities or longer term, um, for lack of a better word, juvenile prisons, you're looking at, you know, the majority of the population being on some kind of psychiatric drug. News 21 reporter Haley Parker has been investigating mental health services in juvenile justice centers. So Haley, we know that this is a really big issue for kids that are in these places. What kind of support is there for them? Hi, Anthony. We've been talking to a lot of experts about this who say the answer to that question is pretty complex. Here's Robert Kinscherf. He's an academic and a member of the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard Medical School. He says the answer to that is not so simple. How behavioral health needs are met in juvenile populations 
um, varies quite significantly from state to state, from the appalling to the surprisingly sophisticated and and well-funded. We've also found that there's no real nationwide standard for how systems should handle mental health. So it's up to each individual state to decide the best route. The National Commission on Correctional Health Care recommends that across the board, facilities should start with mental health screenings upon arrest and youth should be screened again if they're sent to a facility or a court orders it. But again, it's up to the state to decide if they are going to provide this or if they even have the money to provide it. That sometimes the youth may purposely withhold things for like legal or personal motivation um, to withhold really important information. Or sometimes they're withholding information because they don't feel comfortable sharing it. That's Amar Zaman. He's a clinical psychologist who conducts evaluations and therapy for incarcerated youth in Houston. He says that the screenings still aren't foolproof. I've had youth tell me that they don't want to be under close observation sometimes, because what that means is it takes a security officer away from like the general unit, and it makes that security officer always with them. And that makes them kind of stand out from the rest of their peers within the detention center. Well, so the kids don't always feel comfortable talking about their mental health issues. That must complicate a facility's ability to understand the mental health needs of the kids that are there. Exactly. Even for society at large, mental health has only just recently become a normalized part of everyday conversation. And kids in the juvenile justice system are typically the kids who are already misunderstood at home, at school, in their communities. They've never opened up to anybody. They have never spoken to anybody about their concerns. They might, I mean, some of them, you know, we have to keep in mind that at their developmental age, there are some limitations to self-reflection. They might not even realize that they might have issues or concerns or be experiencing symptoms that are in line with depression, anxiety, or trauma. So I think for some of them, it is very hard to seek mental health services because of the, you know, the lack of recognition of what mental health is and what a therapist does. There's no consistency with how it's handled, but basically and similarly to the pathway for someone outside of the system, there's three solutions for mental health issues in the juvenile justice system. Diagnose, medicate, and provide therapy. So in the morning time, I took Risperdone. And then later on, like in the afternoon time, I took Ritalin. I would just be like relaxed, like calm all day, pretty slow. And then that's when they would give me like the Ritalin right before six hour would start. So I could like my body could hype up a little more. That's Lexi Alvarado. She was originally sentenced for aggravated robbery when she was 14 She was released in March 2020. Now she's 21. In the system, she was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, depression, which experts say are all pretty common. Here's Charlene Taylor again. Girls will often sort of turn inward to that with that stuff. So um, some of the other things can manifest themselves in higher levels of depression and anxiety, cutting those kinds of things. It's the same kinds of trauma histories that when we look into their backgrounds, we see very similar very similar patterns, but they come out in very different ways. When I was in Betty Marler, I was like um, pretty like aggressive person. And so like when they would like 
make me take my medication. It like slowed me down a lot. In addition to her prescriptions, Lexi also had daily group therapy sessions after school and a few one-on-one sessions during the week. She said one of her therapists in particular made a really big difference on her time in the system. Yeah, when I was in the system, I kind of felt like I was a, like a kind of, I felt like I was like a mess up. My therapist reassured me like every day. His name was Watechko. He would come to like get me out of my room like every morning and he would just make sure that I'm like, okay. He would like offer to play basketball with me, just get my mind off of me. Even if there is still progress to be made, experts like Charlene Taylor say the current situation with mental health and facilities is still a vast improvement for the juvenile justice system in recent years. What I've seen in the time since I started is a much better recognition of the juvenile justice population and what their needs are um, and really starting to try to pay attention to how does the system make that stuff better or worse? And a lot of times kids end up in the juvenile justice system based on mental health issues that are unaddressed or underaddressed by other things. And then their behavior escalates to the point where they end up in the juvenile justice system. And for some families, particularly those who don't have access to good health insurance, getting into the juvenile justice system is the best way for those kids to be able to get any kind of mental health treatment, which is absolutely terrible. Well, wow. so despite all the, the challenges that these places have in getting the kids there, these services, Taylor says that for some of them coming from such hard homes and communities, it, it can be actually in a, it, it can be actually like the easiest way for them to get mental health treatment. Right. So we typically see that kids in the juvenile justice system, since they're coming from under-resourced communities, sometimes their only option is to go to the juvenile justice system if there are signs of behavioral or mental health issues. We've talked to experts who say that parents make that choice and then end up regretting it. And on the flip side of that, sometimes youth will stay in their communities, will not get the mental health services they need, and it just kind of exacerbates So, I mean, despite all of these challenges and how how rough these places can be for kids, for some, it can be actually a positive part of their life. Right. And that depends a lot on the facility in the state, but we have talked to experts and sources who have told us that sometimes... A kid will really need some kind of help, some kind of support. It's not offered to him or her in their community. And the juvenile justice system takes them and leaves them on the other side. Okay, better than they were before. But on the other hand of that, sometimes the juvenile justice system will pick up a kid who really doesn't need any of these services and will leave them worse off than when they entered most of the time it's just battle every day that's you know five years is just the battle battle with the staff battle with you know get away with stuff don't get away with stuff go to the hole don't go to the hole till you get out bang then what did you even learn dude you didn't even learn nothing we just have to put time and effort and that's just what we're gonna have to do with, with the youth you and you're gonna see the results just like with anything you put time and effort you're gonna see better comeback you're gonna see 
less kids leaving juvenile and recommitting crimes because they're going to learn something from from what they learned at juvenile. They're going to learn something about life, of how to how to conduct their life after this. That's what we all want. We all just want to know we're going to we're going to have some sort of direction after this. Hey, how you doing? My name is Tyus Reed, and this episode was produced by Ike Samanez and written by Patrick Linehan. Assistant producers for this episode were Patrick Linehan, Haley Parker, and Kelsey Khaleesi. News 21 reporters Brody Ford, Kayla Schlabalk, Chloe Johnson, Gabby Semenowska, Jeff Uvino, Kimberly Rapinette, Morgan Wallace, James Woolridge, Deja Henry, Lindsay Nicole, and Molly Cruz also contributed to this episode. Kids in Prison is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode was also assistant produced, mixed, and scored by me, Anthony Wallace, on the next episode of Kids Imprisoned. When we were at the juvenile at the juvenile camp and they would send us for lockdown, we were on twenty three hour lockdown. We would come out for an hour a day and by ourselves. You're not allowed to have pencils in your room and shit. It's like a safety hazard. So all I would do is read, read and sleep.